Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 210, Bletchley Park, The Dark Days. Last time, the British War Cabinet made a cock-up of defending Norway, despite a heads-up by Harry Hensley working in Hut 4 at Bletchley Park. He had noticed the increased traffic signals in or about the Baltic area and sent this on, but due to his appearance, he was not taken seriously. Thus, Norway, several ships, and dozens of lives were now lost. But the only way to win this war was to learn from their mistakes, which was not a guaranteed thing. Indeed, the British Empire had already suffered several naval losses before Norway had been lost, thanks to the growing U-boat menace, not that the U-boat commanders didn't have their own issues. One name that would generate fear and hatred from the British Royal Navy was that of Gunther Preen, commander of U-47. Though he would go on to sink at least 30 enemy vessels and damage nine more, It was his sinking of the battleship Royal Oak at Scapa Flow that made his reputation. True, the defenses of the Orkney Islands were still incomplete, but Gunther had had the guts to penetrate this body of water that was once used by the Vikings a thousand years ago, so credit must go to him for his daring and determination. It was October 8, 1939, and though the home fleet was not at the base at the time, the older battleship was, and Gunther fired on her. Strangely, the first two torpedoes didn't do much besides cutting the anchor chain, but the third of the next three did. The Royal Oak listed to port, and alas, as her portholes were open, this increased her rate of going down, which was completed in 15 minutes, with the loss of 800 crewmen. Gunther would go on to be called the Bull of Scapa Flow. A month later, the HMS Courageous had been lost. While on patrol of the western approaches, this battlecruiser-turned-carrier had just turned into the wind to launch her aircraft, when she was hit by two of three torpedoes launched by U-29. As her power was out, none of those planes could take off. Twenty minutes later, she went under with 519 of her crew, including the captain. Clearly, the Royal Navy had to come up with something to counter the U-boats, but what they, the British, did not know was that the U-boats had their own technical issues to overcome. Like the American subs after Pearl Harbor, the Germans were finding that their torpedoes were not 100% reliable. Not even close. Earlier in the war, U-boats attacked the battleships Nelson and Rodney, the Germans believing that at the time, Churchill had been on the ladder when the torpedoes, to the best of the knowledge of the U-boat crews, made contact, but there had been no explosion. Around the same time, the battlecruiser Hood had been hit with a torpedo, but the object simply broke apart and sank. Getting back to the Battle of Norway, U-boats had also attacked the cruiser Cumberland and York, but again, there had been no explosions. These captains complained to Admiral Donitz, but he did not believe them. Like pilots, sub-commanders have a tendency to think they can do no wrong. Donitz dismissed the accusations. That is, until the bull of Scapa Flow 
joined in with his own complaint. Now Donitz launched an investigation. Preen's complaint was that he had hit the battleship Warspite. His team had heard the contact, but there had been no explosion. Donitz, playing things close to the vest, suspected that, in reality, the torpedoes were set to explode at the wrong magnetic setting. Still, this had to be investigated. So all of the U-boats in Scandinavian waters were ordered home. However, the U-boats in the Atlantic, well, that was a different story, as they kept breaking their own records for tonnage sunk. It was on September 11th, 1939, when the B-Dienst, the Department of the German Naval Intelligence Service, that intercepted, recorded, decoded, and analyzed enemy messages that broke the British convoy signals. The U-boats went to town, sinking enough vessels to cause panic at the Admiralty. And it only got worse. After France fell in late June 1940, Donitz was able to move his sub-bases from Norway to Brittany in northwestern France, and he himself moved his headquarters to the Chateau Les Pinerolles. He was closer to his subs, and they were now 450 miles closer to the Atlantic. Heady days, indeed. As for the chateau, before Donitz made himself at home, it had been used by the Polish general staff and some of the Polish cryptographers who had helped with the Enigma problems years ago. The Chateau of Irony. This period in naval battles came together perfectly for the Germans. London could not spare enough destroyers to really protect the convoys. They were needed for the dreaded home invasion. Meanwhile, when the Allies pulled out of Norway, Donitz was free to focus completely on the unprotected or underprotected convoys, and the results spoke for themselves. In late July 1940, the U-boats sank 38 merchant ships. In September, it was 59 ships. In October, it was 63 ships. Imports were down by a quarter. And this, when Donitz only had seven subs operating in the Atlantic at any one time. But production was telling him that soon there would be 10 new subs each month. And in a short time, Donitz would be able to implement his Wolfpack system. But there was a slight chink in Donitz's plan. When a U-boat spotted a convoy, it would have to contact his headquarters at Angers, close to his sub-bases, and that communication could be picked up by the enemy. Still, with enough U-boats, even them knowing would avail them little. The winter of 1941-42 in the Atlantic was unusually rough, which caused some damage to the U-boats who were out on patrol. Still, with their increased construction, by January 1941, Donitz had 22 U-boats. The threat to Allied shipping only increased, as did the number of sunk vessels. Then there was a setback. Tranau and the others at B. Dienst had to report that the British Royal Navy had changed their cipher procedure, so they were getting less information. Donitz compensated by going old school. For the immediate future, he would have long-range bombers fly to Norway from northern France, refuel, and then return to him. During both ways, they would be on the lookout for convoys, and then they could report those 
to him. As for those scrambled British codes, this time it took Trinow and company five months to react to the changes and again break the British code. By February 1941, Churchill told his cabinet that, to his thinking, the island could be looking at starvation levels if the losses in the Atlantic kept rising. As he is well known to have said, the only thing that ever really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. As such, a Battle of the Atlantic Cabinet Committee would meet every week, led by First Sea Lord Sir Dudley Pound. But at least on March 11, 1941, the U.S. made the law the Lend-Lease Act, and the U.S. was going to exchange 50 of their older destroyers so the British would have protection for their escorts. What did Washington get? Long-term leases on British naval bases closer to the American coast. Ever more impactful, the U.S. would be taking over in guarding the convoys coming out of Greenland, Newfoundland, the West Indies, and the American East Coast. This being practically at war with Nazi Germany without technically being at war with Nazi Germany would see clashes, battles, and shots exchanged between the American escorts and the U-boats. One of the most famous sinkings was that of the American destroyer Reuben James and a well-known song about the ship by Woody Guthrie, a famous American folk singer, who in 1943, had a guitar with a sticker that read, This Machine Kills Fascists. Before her infamous ending, the USS Reuben James, a Clemson-class destroyer, was named after a boatswain's mate that distinguished himself in the first Barbary War that was commissioned in September 1920. Just after the Great War, the Reuben James patrolled the Mediterranean, then went to Yugoslavia and participated in the ceremonies that marked the return of the unknown soldier to the United States. She was decommissioned in January 1931, but recommissioned in March of 1932. By January 1939, she was back in the Atlantic Fleet. When Germany invaded Poland, the Reuben was sent to the Neutrality Patrol, which like the British fleet guarding their western approaches, she now helped protect the Atlantic and Caribbean approaches to the American coast. And now, back to the main storyline. In March 1941, she was sent to help escort convoys heading for Great Britain. This force's job was to get the convoys safely to Iceland, where the British would take over. As such, the Roman James was based at Halfordish, Iceland. Her captain was Lieutenant Commander Haywood Lane Edwards. On September 30, 1941, the Reuben was a part of an escort force that shielded convoy ON-20, coming from the British Isles to the American coast. The Reuben was there for that part of the trip that went from Iceland to Newfoundland. This escorting duty was over on October 9th. But on October 24th, she was back at it again, this time protecting convoy HX-156. And her part would be the part of the trip from Newfoundland to Iceland. Overall, HX-156 was going to Nova Scotia from Liverpool. The 43 ships of the convoy had left Halifax on October 22nd. 
Two days later, they were met by the U.S. Navy Task Unit 413, of which the destroyer Reuben James was a part. But also waiting was U-552, commanded by Eric Topp. On October 31, 1941, the Reuben James was sent to investigate a huff-duff bearing, or high-frequency direction finding, or HFDF, was a type of radio directing finder that could catch enemy radio signals from land-based headquarters going to subs. And now it was saying that at least one U-boat was nearing an ammunition ship. So the Reuben James put herself in between the threat and the target. Soon after, a torpedo hit the Reuben's port side and set off her forward magazine. She was gone in only a matter of minutes. Only 44 men of the 159 on board were rescued. The Reuben James was the first American warship sunk during World War II, but obviously before the United States entered the war. The next day, the American task force handed the convoy over to the British 6th Escort Group. That same day, after the handoff, U-552 and U-567 fired torpedoes at the merchantmen, but missed. The U-boats stayed with the convoy for the next few days, but could not get another decent opening. The convoy reached Liverpool on November 5th. The Reuben James had been the only loss. But hopefully this process would get better in the future once the older American destroyers were handed over. The idea being that the convoy protection would be more aggressive. Normally the escorts would just rush towards a targeted ship and do the best they could. Now, with the extra ships, convoy policy would dictate that the escorts would now follow and harass a U-boat until it was either destroyed or chased far away. No more minimalist actions, while expecting maximum results. The British Royal Navy had just leveled up. As this more aggressive approach dovetailed nicely with the future professor Harry Hinsley and his barely hanging in their trousers, he provided hints for possible actions by the enemy, and at the other end, the destroyers aimed to make the U-boats pay when Hinsley got it right. He would soon be called the Cardinal, and his contributions caused his reputation to grow. Still, the people in charge, like Knox and Turning and others, needed a golden key, something to allow them to bring the larger puzzle into focus. They needed a German K-book and the bigram tables. With those, the subs could be chased down, wiped out, and the supplies so desperately needed by those on the home island could arrive safely. Bletchley just needed a break. Just as the sun was coming up on February 12, 1940, the British minesweeper Gleaner picked up something at 2.50 a.m. below them. Prudently, they dropped several depth charges as there were no friendlies in the area. About 30 minutes later, a U-boat, U-33, was spotted on the surface. Having spotted and been spotted in return, the U-boat quickly went under. The gleaner went back to dropping depth charges. Taking a short break from this to see if anything had come to the surface, when the answer to that was negative, 
the minesweepers started dropping charges again. The good news was that if any U-boats were down there, they were in trouble. The bad news was that one of the explosions was just a little too close to the minesweeper, and the concussion knocked out her lights. Fortunately, daylight was coming. As the Gleaner was near the Firth of Clyde on the western coast of Scotland, just level with the northern tip of Ireland, the minesweeper's commander was glad that none of his men, and there were nine of them in total, two officers, a senior rating, and six junior ratings, were in the water. Speaking of the water, after this latest attack, everything went quiet and still. That is, until U-33 broke the surface of the water at 5.22 a.m. Clearly, the sub was damaged, but not without hope. And the best part was, she wasn't sinking. The minesweeper captain, Lieutenant Commander Hugh Price, saw an opportunity. Something to help the eggheads who worried over signals and things like that. Commander Price had the gleaner rush to the sub's side, but then... The conning tower of the sub was further ripped by a secondary explosion. The shock waves damaged the gleaner's engines. It was then that the sub did start going under. Fortunately for some of her crew, local trawlers rushed out to pick up survivors, but only 17 of the 42 crewmen would be saved, and one of those lost was the U-boat commander, Hans Wilhelm von Jetski, who had a reputation for being merciful to the crews of the ships that he sunk, like pulling their lifeboats to well-traveled sea lanes or shooting up distress rockets to give his victims some help. Commander Price was upset that the sub was lost, but still went through the normal procedures and had the survivors searched, which was a good thing for Bletchley Park. In their haste to survive the sinking sub, some of the crewmen forgot to empty their pockets, and they contained rotor wheels for an Enigma machine. And just like that, Turing and the others got a break. They needed more information, more parts, more everything. But it was clear by now the answer would come from the sea. So the various crews of the Royal Navy were put on notice. Get all the info and hardware you can from whatever enemy vessel you can. About five weeks later, Bletchley was about to be given another piece of the puzzle. On April 26th, the G-Class destroyer Griffin was patrolling with the destroyer Archeron when they captured the German trawler Skiff 26 on her way to Narvik with guns and ammunition. The problem was her disguise as a Dutch ship Polaris had not worked. Her one gun and two torpedo tubes gave her away. Even better, the captured crew had not had time to throw away or destroy all of their code books, which the British sailors took. This material made it back to Bletchley, who used it to read Enigma naval codes for six glorious days before the codes were changed again. This was not the magic bullet to solve all the problems, but Alan Turing and his colleagues got to see how Enigma worked from start to finish. More breakthroughs would come because of this. Those in the know at Bletchley got together and realized they had gotten further 
by having those two pieces of information from the German vessels, then all of their work, their sweat, and the bomb machine. As in, yes, they could keep finding cribs or plain language messages obtained by one or more cipher messages that had already been solved, but it would only be a very small piece, again, of a much larger puzzle. As in, they could keep putting messages into the bomb computers, and if they were really lucky, they might unlock the Enigma settings for a month, if they had had the bigram tables. That is, the list of shortcuts for codes. But once the Enigma system was reset, they would be back at square one. No, if they could get their hands on the material, that is, the machine itself, but at least the code books, then they would be on to something. But as it was, this was a very frustrating time for those at Bletchley. It was made worse by the strong personalities floating around Bletchley Park. They, focused on their particular task, were not looking at the larger picture, the result being those cryptographers and those helping them, in terms of those working on the Luftwaffe and Wehrmacht messages, were simply focused on decoding. However, the Navy cryptographers were still mostly in the dark, and this was hurting the convoys. And it has to be said, and this is replete throughout history, someone like Turing was brilliant, but undisciplined and he needed handlers. As Frank Birch in Hut 4 would later write, Turing and Twin are brilliant, but like many brilliant people, they are not practical. They are untidy. They lose things, and they can't copyright. Dilly Knox, cheap cryptographer, would say of Turing, I have just, but only just, enough authority and ability to keep his ideas in some sort of order and discipline. But... He is very nice about it all. That's nice, but a more organized approach written down would have been better. But for those paying attention, they quickly figured out that the Air Force cryptographers were using the bomb way more than the other teams. And of course, the naval cryptographers, in trying to help the convoys, needed more time with the big machine. Clearly, something had to give which is when the Admiralty sent out a letter to all commanding officers in home ports. The message read on August 29, 1940, It is known that many German naval signals are ciphered on a machine. A photograph of a ciphering machine is reproduced. Any machine of this type discovered on a German man-of-war should be carefully packed and forwarded to the Director of Naval Intelligence, Admiralty in charge of an officer by the quickest possible route. So while the Navy team at Bletchley waited for a Royal Navy officer to come in on a white stallion carrying an Enigma machine and hopefully code books, they would focus on the Italians' Navy codes, as they had no bigrams or trigrams, easier to deal with. And a lady, who after the war would go on to write about gardens, would make a breakthrough, and being able to read the Italian Navy's codes, this would lead to the crushing defeat of the Italians at the Battle of Matapan, where five Italian vessels were destroyed. Later, former C&C Mediterranean Fleet Sir Andrew Cunningham himself would fly to Bletchley to thank the women 
personally. They thanked the Admiral right back for his duty, but while they were talking to him, they walked ever closer to the Admiral, forcing him to back up. Before too long, he was standing against a wall in his flawlessly blue Navy uniform. The wall had just been painted white. Yes, Bletchley Park was filled with oddballs, but oddballs who were making progress. <laughs> 